And um, for Advent, this Sunday and the next two, we'll kind of be here and there, looking at different aspects of celebrating the Incarnation, um, God becoming a man. So this morning we're in Luke, <clears throat> excuse me, Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 25. If you don't have a Bible, you can just for, uh, follow in the order of worship. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 25 had a real uh, privilege, it was a little bit frightening on the front end, but I had a privilege earlier this week, or I should say last week, to, uh, to serve on a panel, a panel discussion downtown. This was something done by the Warehouse Theater, which is a downtown theater, which, uh, and I put in a plug for this because this was the reason for uh, the, the panel discussion that I was a part of, but... Right now, there's a performance of Screw Tape, which is based on C.S. Lewis's book, Screw Tape Letters, and um, looks at the devil and his trickery and his schemes and his plots and schemes. So, uh, if you can get a seat, uh, it'd be worth checking out before that show is over. But in anticipation of that starting this past Friday night, Wednesday night, there was an open, they called it an open conversation, open forum at the Warehouse Theater. And uh, I served with two other ministers to talk about evil. And uh, we were asked some questions by the facilitator just to sort of lead the discussion. And then the, uh, those who were there that night, the audience, raised some questions as well. And something that has stayed with me is a question that came toward the end. And it was from one of the staff members of the Warehouse Theater. And she said this. She said... Uh, I, I, did, I want to throw this out to all three of you. <clears throat> I just look at the news, and uh, I, it just seems like there is so much darkness in the world. And there's so much bad news, and, it, you know, just whether it's near or far. And it just feels overwhelming sometimes. And, and then I guess she kind of realized that she didn't really have a question. And she said, basically, j- j- talk about that. So we did, but, but I know what she was doing, and, and I, I think really this resonates with just about everybody in this room, is whether it's you're looking at your own life, or you're looking at, at local news in Greenville, or you're, you're uh, considering the news around the world, they're just things that you realize you, you cannot fix this with a program. And you cannot fix this with behavior modification. You can't fix it with better education. You cannot fix it with nonprofits. It's just too massive. And even in my own, uh, when I chimed in, in my own response, I said, you know, this might muddy the waters more than clear it. But before the earthquake in Haiti, before the earthquake, there were 10,000 non-governmental organizations working in Haiti. NGOs, 10,000. And it's not a massive nation. And they cannot turn it around because the problems of the leadership that is there, of oppression, uh, of the way the economy works, of just the cycles of poverty, they are so deep. You cannot just swoop in with great ideas and some funding and fix it. And you can see things like that globally. You can see things like that in your own life or or patterns in your family. 
And what it does, if we're honest, is it creates a longing that one day this is going to get dealt with. But even as we say that, we're going, but I have no idea what that would look like. Like we want Haiti to be fixed. Okay, what would that look like? What's the flow chart for that? And what's that going to run? Who's going to fund it? We want consolation. I think when that, when that staff member raised that question, and I don't mean this in a patronizing way like, you know, there, there, but I mean just as a human being, she wanted consolation. Things are so wrong. Will they ever be right? Because I sure want them to be. Don't we all? That is a desire for consolation. Now, we're about to read a text where a man is going to say... Now, this is unusual for any human being, but I think especially for a male to say, I'm ready to die now. I'm now ready to die. And the reason I'm ready to die is I have finally seen the person who is the consolation... I've finally seen the person who is going to fix this whole thing. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the, parent, when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts for many hearts may be revealed. Amen. Let's ask God to bless our time in the Word. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we ask again, as we've asked so many times, that you would calm us, that the thing that right now preoccupies us, that is gnawing at us, that is distracting us, would be kept at bay by you. We pray that we would bring our real life to this text, and you would bring the text to our real life and shed light upon it and upon us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to look at this passage this morning again as we're in Advent and we're celebrating God becoming a man and the first coming of Jesus Christ. And I want to look at two, two, uh, two questions. There's several 
people named Simon or Simeon in the New Testament. This is, uh, this is one who you don't see as much. He kind of comes and goes. But I want to ask two questions. First off, how did this man, Simeon, how did he know what he knew? And then second, what did he say? And this may not seem like a big deal to you, but just something to think about. This may or may not be interesting to you, but uh, even if you're just interested in history, this is worth noting that this, this outburst of Simeon, where he begins by saying to God, you know, Lord, now you can dismiss your servant. Uh, the, the first two words of that in Latin are nunc dimittis or nunc dimittis. The Nunc Dimittis is a song that has been a huge part of Christian worship for almost 2,000 years. Now, in some traditions it still is, but in most of Protestantism it's not. And it makes you wonder, how did that fall out? Because it's a song about things aren't the way they should be yet. But the one who's going to make them be that way has come. And that really should be at the heart of what we celebrate and remember when we come together. But it's a fairly unfamiliar passage to us. So I do want us to consider this in our worship. First off, how did Simeon know what he knew? And then what did Simeon say? The first thing, look in verse 33. It says that Simeon is burdened by God to go to the temple in Jerusalem at a certain time. Joseph and Mary are there, and they're obeying the Bible. There were very set set requirements for what you did when you were a brand new mother. And and for a while you had a status of being ceremonially unclean, what you did to become ceremonially clean. And there were sacrifices and offerings that would accompany the birth of a child, especially the firstborn, especially a firstborn son. Joseph and Mary are showing that they really do, they follow the Lord. They are a devout couple. They're at the temple doing these things that God's law requires. And at the moment that they're there, this man Simeon is led by the Lord to be there. And he comes over to their child. The text never says that he actually asked permission to do this. But he takes Jesus in his arms. I mean, he probably asked, but we don't know. Takes the child and holds him and begins talking to God about him. And then he talks, he blesses the parents, and he talks to Mary about her son. And then it says in verse 3, And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. Now, that, that always confused me because I thought, okay, wait, 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 wait a minute. This is from the book of Luke. Already in the book of Luke... A frightening angel has appeared to Joseph to say, your soon-to-be wife is going to have a son. Don't divorce her. This is of God. He's the son of God. And he's going to fill the throne of his father David. And a frightening angel appears to Mary and says the same thing. Angels are telling shepherds, the son of God is going to be born. These shepherds show up unexpectedly at the birth of Jesus. You You would think at that point that Joseph and Mary are kind of getting the clue that their child is special, all right? Maybe at that point they wouldn't be shocked for someone to say, this is really a special child. Then why does it say they marvel? They're marveling because this man is a stranger. 
This, this stranger walks up to them in the temple and either asks or takes Jesus and begins saying things, and they don't know how he knows this. So how does he know these things? Look in verse 25. It says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now get this, And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now you'll find that phrase in the Old Testament where the Spirit of God will come on a person, usually to achieve some great task or fulfill some great calling. But then after that, you don't really hear them described as having the Spirit on them. But this description of Simeon says that it seems permanently the Spirit of God rests on him. Verse 26, And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I want you to think about this. In the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke, the Holy Spirit is all over the place. When the angel comes to Mary and tells her that she's going to have this child before she's married, before she's known a man, the way he explains it to her is that the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow you. And you're going to bear a son. We don't totally know what that... We hardly know what that means. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you. There He is. And then when John the Baptist's daddy, Zechariah, this is Jesus' cousin, John, when his daddy who hasn't been able to talk. He was struck dumb because he doubted a prophecy. When he gets his speech back at the birth of his son, John the Baptist, it says that when he burst into song, it's because the Holy Spirit came on him. Uh, When Mary is pregnant and she goes to see her relative, Elizabeth, as John the Baptist's mom, and she gets to Elizabeth's home. It says that Elizabeth sees her. It says that the baby, John, jumps in her womb. And she's filled with the Holy Spirit. And, she's, and she starts saying, really, in a way, and I don't mean this irreverently, weird things to say to your relative. She says, how is it that the mother of my Lord is coming to visit me? This is her kin. Of course she would come to visit. But she burst into song because she's filled with the Holy Spirit. Now... Here's what I want you to think about. Birth of, uh, the announcement of Mary bearing a son before she's known a man. Birth of John the Baptist. Uh, the coming of Mary to visit Elizabeth. Simeon's song. The Holy Spirit is there and people just burst out. And what do they talk about? It's very important. In the, in the first two chapters of Luke, when people are filled with the Holy Spirit... What do they talk about? They do not talk about the Holy Spirit. They talk about redemption and Christ. Like I said, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but this is important to understand as a church. As a church, downtown Presbyterian, I hope like any Christian church should, we love the Holy Spirit. We worship Him as the third person of the Trinity, that He's equal in power and glory to God the Father and God the Son. He's not like God Jr. He is fully God, and He's not an it. 
He's a He. But being filled with the Holy Spirit and being ministered to by the Holy Spirit should not nudge us to talk more and more and more and more about the Holy Spirit. It's right and good to talk about Him, especially when the Scriptures are talking about Him. But when people are filled with the Holy Spirit, what they become preoccupied with is redemption. And Jesus Christ, they don't become preoccupied with talking about the Holy Spirit necessarily. They become preoccupied with the fact that there is this cosmic struggle going back all the way to the Garden of Eden between good and evil. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And there is one person who has achieved victory. And he has achieved victory, not just for his own name, but for his people. When people get, if I can put it this way, if a Presbyterian can put it this way, when the Holy Ghost gets on you, that's what grabs our hearts. And some of the most amazing, amazing theological reflection about the Spirit of God in the New Testament is by the Apostle Paul. And do you know what he says in one place in one of his letters? He says that when he went to a group of people to preach to them, he said, when I was with you and I was preaching to you, I determined to know nothing with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I mean, he was the theologian par excellence of what we can know about the Holy Spirit. He said, when I was with you, I wanted to talk about Jesus. Very important. Now, he's the one that reveals to Simeon, you need to be there because this is when it's going to happen. He's the one who had revealed, you're not going to die until you see him. So he has him at the right place at the right time. So what does Simeon say? Simeon talks to two different people, persons. He talks to God and he talks, interestingly, not to Joseph and Mary. He talks to Mary talks to God and talks to Mary. Now, what, what does he say to God? The first thing he says is this. You can dismiss me. Now again, all human beings, because we're fallen, our identity gets way too wrapped up in our work. And sometimes, you know, this can be true of yourself or people that you work with, you kind of don't know where the work stops and the person starts or where the person stops and the work starts because they get so intertwined. And that can be vocation at the office or it can be vocation at home. But our, our, our identity gets very wrapped up in our work. And isn't it interesting here to see a male saying, it's fine if I die now. Because. Why? I mean, don't, don't we all have things that we say, you know... Uh, I, I, if you're a Christian, I do believe in Jesus. He has taken away the fear of death. I am ready to die. I just don't want to die before such and such happens. It could be a host of things. Before I get married. Before I meet that someone. Before I see if I can uh, pull off this business and really get it to the place I want it to be. Before I have grandchildren. Before this. Before we live in such and such a place. You know, or I just want to see the Great Wall of China. You know, is that so wrong? So, you know, the, the bucket list kind of stuff. 
Just let me do that and then Jesus can come back or I can die. You can dismiss me now because the longings of my heart. Now understand, Simeon is not a flannel board person. Do you know what I mean by flannel board? This is like old-fashioned Sunday school talk. Flannel board is like this board on a little tripod with flannel, and you get you have little paper cutout figures, and you, you put them on the, the static electricity keeps them up on the on the flannel board, and uh, you know basically there's all the men on the flannel board they're all bearded with tunics you know so you're going is that Moses no that's Jesus ah you know <laughs> is that Paul no it's King Saul ah. Simeon is not. A flannel board person. He's a flesh and blood man. Flesh and blood man in a real world saying, I don't need to do anything else. I've seen what I need to see. And then he says what? He says, I've seen your salvation. We could be here for weeks on that phrase. I have seen your salvation. But just a couple of things to think about. Number one, he says to God, that he's not just looking, he's holding an eight-day-old boy. We've got a lot of new babies around here, but some of our newest ones are nine or ten days old, and they're not here. This is a little child, and he's holding this eight-day-old boy. He says, I have seen your salvation. Number one, it's yours. It's something that the Scriptures are very clear about is that it's not that God the Father is the angry deity. And He's the one waiting to drop the hammer. And then God the Son is the kind, benevolent deity. And He's going to go to bat for us. The gospel comes from God. He gives away His Son. Because he loves sinners. And what's equally amazing is that Simeon is looking at a baby and he says, This is your salvation. Because the way we tend to think about salvation is that it's a dogma, or it's a religion, or it's a way of doing something. And if you do it this way, or you learn the dogma and you, and you follow it that way, then you have salvation. Salvation. He's not looking at a code of ethics. He's looking at flesh and blood and he says, I've seen your salvation. The good news is not a code of ethics. The good news is a person. Fully God, but fully man. Fully human. And then he says this. So loaded. He says, let me read it. Verse 32 that He's a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Those are all the people in the world. You're either Jewish or you're Gentile. Whether you're religious or not, you're either Jewish or you're Gentile. He says that He, He's light for all the Gentiles and He's glory for your people Israel. And you realize what He's saying? He is saying that from whatever people group you come from, 
from whatever cultural background you come from, your culture is going to have aspirations and longings. Now, some of the longings are bad. Your culture might want to stamp out all the other cultures. That's a bad longing. But not all the longings of a culture are bad. Every nation, every tribe, every people group, they have these deep, deep longings that even its own culture doesn't satisfy. Every people group has this nagging sense deep down that what we're doing here isn't enough. And Simeon is saying, Lord, this one is going to be the satisfaction that all the human groups seek. Uh, there's, there's a scholar at Yale University. He's a, he's a scholar not only of world Christianity, but of uh, African Christianity in particular, named Lamin Sane. He himself is African. I believe he comes from Ghana and is a former Muslim, now a Christian. And he, he wrote an interesting thing one time. He, he said that it really bothered him when he would hear, even sometimes from his colleagues, when Christians go to a place like Africa and try to impose Christianity on it, because Africa was such a huge emphasis, especially in the 1900s. Sounds weird to say in the 1900s, but it was. Uh, they're imposing their views on a culture. You're, you're, impo- you're imposing European and American values on a continent that may not want them. And Lamin Sane said, let me tell you something. When Africa found Jesus, it found how to be African. He doesn't belong to Europe. And he doesn't belong to the United States. Here's what he writes. People in Africa, once they had met Jesus, they sensed in their hearts that Jesus did not mock their respect for the sacred, nor their clamor for an invincible Savior. And so they beat their sacred drums for Him until the stars skipped and danced in the skies. After that dance, the stars were not little anymore. Christianity helped Africans to become renewed Africans, not remade Europeans. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying that here's a completely different culture, a completely different continent. But when they found him, this one that Simeon was holding, they found the answer to their longings. And, and, and I, I'm going to say this a little bit more at the end, but I, let me just say this to you. The reason I said at the beginning of the service... If you have longings that just don't ever seem to really get fulfilled, I would say to you, do not play that down. Don't squelch it. Don't ignore it. Don't self-medicate it away. That, that that is you showing that you are made in the image of God, that you are part of the nations, and that you are... You're made for something bigger than what you can find in your own resources. But here's the thing. Your resources will never satisfy it. And that one that Simeon was holding will. That's what Simeon says to God. But then what does he say to Mary? And we, we don't know exactly why he only speaks to Mary. The Gospels seem to indicate that by the time Jesus began his public ministry, Joseph was... It passed away. And perhaps under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he directs his comments to her to say, you're the main person who's going to need this. 
It says this first, that this one, he's going to call the, cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. Now that's an interesting phrase. Because if it just said he's going to call the falling and rising of many, the way I would take it would be, yeah, Rome going down. And that's, I, that's definitely how first century Jews would have taken it. That was the conception of what the Messiah was going to do. Rome, pagan, evil, oppressive, materialistic, going down. And Israel, Israel will rise. But he says it's going to call the falling and rising of many in Israel. That's the rub. And what does that mean? This is the second time something like this has come up in a song in Luke. When Mary burst into song, she talked about this same thing. The Magnificat. When Mary starts singing, she says that the Lord, He gives good things to the hungry. He sends the rich away empty-handed. He establishes the poor and raises them up. But the arrogant He brings down. Those are recurring biblical themes. God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to whom? The humble. Here's what Simeon is saying. Mary, young lady, maybe 15, we don't know. Young lady, He's going to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. Many in Israel are already comfortable and think they are good. They do not feel the need for consolation because they are comfortable. They will fall. And there are some in Israel whose hearts are broken. They are broken because they are sinners. And their hearts are broken because the world is broken. And none of us can fix it. He will cause them to rise. And then he says this, Young lady, a sword is going to pierce your soul. And do you understand that before this in Luke, we don't really have much... If you're reading this for the first time, you don't really know that messiahs get killed. You could, you could basically read this far in Luke and think, yeah, he's going to come in and crush Rome, and uh, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome for Israel. And what Simeon is basically saying is, young lady, any mother worth her salt not only expects her children to outlive her, but she would want them to. And you probably assume that this boy will outlive you. He's not going to. And you're going to experience sadness, and perhaps the loss of your husband, but you will never, never feel your heart broken like he will. Because that's what it's going to take to console Israel. Now, I want to end by saying this. Um, you know, you can hear all this and say, that's interesting, 
But I don't know where to connect with that. I mean, this man Simeon is pretty unique. He's like a prophet. He can say things God wants him to say. God can tell him you're not going to die until something happens. That's not my life. And I sure can't relate to Joseph and Mary because I, the Messiah's come. That was their unique thing, and that's not our thing. But what drives this text is that all this waiting now has found its fulfillment. What about us? And here's what I want to end with, friends, is that we are to wait for Him as well. Go back to Haiti. What will fix it? But you can, you can send money to it. You can send nonprofits to it. You can pray for it. And we want to do all those things. But it just seems unfixable the problems are so deep. About 10 years ago, I got to go to Bucharest, Romania. Bucharest, Romania used to be called the Paris of the East. It was full of neoclassical architecture, gorgeous city in Eastern Europe. And then for about three decades, Ceausescu ran it into the ground. And when I took a group there several years ago, college students, all of us at the end of the week kind of said, number one, this place is amazing. And number two, it is so sad. You pull up next to these trolleys and these buses and no one is smiling. The city now looks like a computer-generated, sad, post-communist landscape. Now, how do you fix that? But don't you want it to be fixed? Don't you want it to be the Paris of the East again? And the good news is this. If you want that, that's a good thing to want. Because Jesus did not just come. He wasn't just sent to Joseph and Mary to take away individual sins, although He certainly can and will do that. But He comes to make His blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Now, I want to read this to you and then we'll be done. Hebrews 9.28 says this, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. 1 Peter 1.13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Are there things in your family that no one can fix? Okay, number one, join the club. Everybody's family is full of things that no one can fix. Is Greenville full of things that no one can fix? Is the United States full of those? North Korea? Haiti? Romania? Yes. And the Bible never calls you to play that down, but it calls you to do this. Believe on the one who came to undo everything that the fall ravaged. And we labor for him now. Yes, be a nonprofit, volunteer, serve, get your hands dirty. But the good news is not that we can go out there and get our hands dirty. The good news is that Jesus Christ is our consolation. That if you are found in Him, you will live on an earth with no poverty, no oppression, 
No birth defects. No dictators. No abuse. No depression. Because He really came. And He overcame sin and death. May you find your longings consoled, not in trying harder, but in Him. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, enable us to cast ourselves on You, to find our consolation in You, not in our things, not in our goodness, not in our attainments, but in You. We pray this in Your name. Amen.